If uh, you got your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 105. And let's pray. And we've got a journey to take this morning, all right? <laughs> Heavenly Father, oh, what we have today, we in advance praise you. Praise you for your presence. Praise you for your power, your wisdom, your strength, your knowledge, everything about you, the way that you work within our lives personally, how you deal with nations, how you deal with everything. You are mighty and you are our God and you are our Father. And we have such a wonderful place and a position as your children and understanding that you have things for us that we can't even fathom, but you lead us on in your ways. And so God, please meet us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Psalm 105. Listen to what it says. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but we're going to go through the chunk of it that's pertinent to the passage this morning. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, he, his chosen ones. Verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he has commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he has made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Now, this is where it comes into where we start this morning. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do, not, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land, and broke all supply of bread. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the, prophet, of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure, and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Jacob, I mean came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful, and made them stronger than their foes, and he turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles 
in the land of Ham. That is the big picture. What we are going to see today is God working in people, God working in a family, God working in nations. And it's all tied together. We see God bringing Joseph into Egypt. And in doing so, he is going to build a family of 70 people into a nation of almost a million. Okay? He uses Joseph to bring them into Egypt. He uses Moses to bring them out of Egypt. Both men are being worked on by the Lord. At the same time, God is dealing with Egypt. He is dealing with the nation of Israel, the family of Israel, and he's dealing with individuals beyond that as well. And what I want us to understand as we go into this is that when we look at this passage of Scripture, where Genesis 38 through Exodus 9, it's a continuous story of God working his plans and purposes in the world and in people's lives. And a lot of times the way that God works is in a way that is not what we would expect and maybe not even what we would like. When you look at how Joseph is brought into Egypt and how God puts him in a position of power, I ask myself sometimes, how come he didn't just start the famine and then have Joseph go in and, hey, he happened to just meet this gal and they hit it off and it was really great. She happened to be the, the, the daughter of the, uh, the high priest of On, And they got married and then Pharaoh had this crazy dream. And, you know, Joseph's wife said, hey, you know, my husband, he can do this dream thing, you know. And why not do it that way? Well, because God is preparing a man named Joseph. He's preparing a man named Moses. When we start, we'll see he's preparing a man named Judah. God puts us in positions and in the fires of tribulation and hardship to purify for himself a vessel that he can use. Okay? If you've ever been around clay and seen a potter work, if you do not fire the clay, you've got some serious problems. It's not going to work. If you've ever been around people who work with metal and steel, if you do not fire it and purify it and temper it, you're going to have problems. The fires of tribulation strengthen, temper, purify, to make us more of what God desires us to be, not only for his glory, but also for the advancement of his purposes and for our good and blessing. So as we go through this, we're going to see a lot of heartache. But boy, do we see a lot of blessing too. And like Paul says, these tribulations that we have, they're bad for now, but boy, the glory that's to come way outweigh those things. Okay, so chapter 38, it's the situation where Judah uh, and Tamar have uh, sexual relations and um, we're not going to delve into this, but to give you an idea what's going on, you remember that when Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, they were going to kill him. And Judah was the one who is supposed to be the next in line for the birthright. You remember that Reuben had sex with his father Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. Well, so that knocked him out of the running as having the right to the birthright. 
So they would go to Simeon. Well, Simeon and the next in line, Levi, did a little thing with the people of Shechem because Shechem ended up raping their sister, Dinah, okay? And Jacob didn't do anything about it, but Simeon and Levi decided, hey, let's go ahead and we're going to trick the people of Shechem. And when they're at their weakest point, we're going to kill all the men of the city. And that's what they did. And so the birthright passed from them on down to Judah. Now, Judah is no prince himself, okay? Judah is the one who said, hey, why kill our brother? Why don't we just sell him as a slave and we can make a buck off of him, okay? I mean, he is our brother after all, so why, you know, let's, let's just sell him. What a sweet guy, right? So they sell him into slavery, and then he has a daughter-in-law named Tamar. And uh, she's married to his eldest son, and she dies, or he dies, I'm sorry. And so the custom is you have the next son in line marry her to carry on the family name, okay? So the next in line married, and he sinned, and God dealt with him, killed him. And so she's a widow again. And Judas got one other son. Now, by this time, he doesn't... The, the, the batting average here is not going well, okay? So he's like, I'm not going to give her to her. So he's putting his commitment to Tamar as a father-in-law aside. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. And one day, he uh, goes into a city, and Tamar hears about it. And so she disguises herself as a temple prostitute. And Judah, he says, hey, there's a prostitute. And he goes and he has sex with her. But she gets some things that belong to him to prove who the father of the child would be, okay? And so when Judah gets word that Tamar's pregnant, he's livid. She's going to be put to death. Oh, really? Well, that's very, you know, that's pretty hypocritical, right? And so uh, she says, well, whose are the staff in the signet? Mine. Yeah. And Judah says, well, you're more righteous than I am. And she had a couple of children. She is a great, 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 great grandmama of Jesus. God used the mess. I'm glad God does that. But we see this mess here in chapter 38 of a man who is not a noble man. But by the time we see the end of Genesis, Judah is a man who is willing to put himself on the line and be a substitute for his younger brother, Benjamin, as he thinks that Joseph is going to drop the hammer on Benjamin. And he says to, to Joseph, look, if Je Benjamin doesn't go back to my dad, my dad's going to die. It's just going to kill him. He's already lost one son. He can't lose another one. And so through this process, God is taking a man who is not a noble man and transforming him into a man of integrity. And it's so awesome to see how God works. He takes us in our state and he moves us forward into the greater things that he has for us. So we go into chapter 39. It says, verse 1, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him 
bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now listen to this, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So he has been betrayed by his brothers. He has been sold into slavery in the land of Egypt. But it says that God is with him. And as we go through these chapters, we're going to see things get dark for people. Joseph's life, we see it getting from bad to worse. I was thinking uh, earlier this week, it's like, you know, if anybody could say, if I didn't have bad luck, I'd have no luck at all, it would be Joseph. You know, I mean, it's just like he could not get ahead at all from a human standpoint. Even when he did his best and he worked hard, it went from bad to worse. But the Lord was with him as he was taking this young man, 17 years old, and developing him to a man who would rule an empire. Okay? That's going to take some work. So before he exalts him, he has to humble him and bring him low. Not because he's mean, not because God's mean, but because God needs to work on him and prepare him for the tasks ahead. And that's what he does with us. Okay? The fires of tribulation and hardship are good. They're hard, but they're good and they're purifying and strengthening. And so he's doing well. And Potiphar's wife, we know the story, she digs on him. He's a good-looking 17-year-old guy, you know. And we don't know how old Potiphar was, but, you know, maybe he wasn't so hot-looking. I don't know. But she really digs on him. And so she starts pressing him to sleep with her. And his perspective that we see here, he says in verse 9, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? His perspective on on sin was it's not just against her or against Potiphar he understood that he was sinning against God himself and it's like I can't do that I won't do that but it says that Potiphar's wife pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and cried out to him and here's the thing to consider and we're going to see this as we go through these chapters sin puts a bullseye on us when we try to follow the Lord, when we try to seek the Lord and hold to the Lord and pursue his purposes, the enemy wants to take us out. And temptation does not give up, okay? It presses and presses and presses, and that's what she was doing to Joseph. Satan did it with Jesus. He waited until Jesus was 40 days of fasting. He's weak. You know, it says in the scriptures he was hungry. Oh, yeah, you bet he was hungry. 40 days of no food. And that's when Satan comes and he hits him once. Boom. With temptation. Didn't work. Hits him again. Boom. Didn't work. Hits him again. Boom. You know, and then it says that he departed and waited for a more opportune time. Satan doesn't give up. At least not easily. She didn't give up. And he stood his ground for the Lord and instead of being hailed a hero and a great moral guy, he gets framed for attempted rape, and he finds himself 
in Potiphar's prison, in the pit, is what it says in, in uh, uh, another place in Genesis, okay? And did you catch in Psalm 105 that his feet were, basically what it says in Hebrew is violated in the fetters. When he went to prison for doing the right thing and standing for God, he was put in fetters and it maimed him for his life. You ever think about that with Joseph? I wonder when he came out of that prison, they got him all cleaned up and stuff before he went to Pharaoh. Was he limping and all? Kind of like Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. You know, we don't think about those things. He had chains. Charles Spurgeon said that when, when God moves in our lives, the, the chains of iron are precursors to the chains of gold. And we see that with Joseph. We see that so often, and even in our own lives, where we have those burdens, but they become the very things from which we launch into the heights of the things that God has for us. So he stands his ground, he's in prison, he's in chains. But verse 21, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Okay, so I'm in prison now. I'm framed for attempted rape. My feet are getting really messed up because of chains. And you've got steadfast love and you're with me. You ever be in a situation where you did not feel like God was with you and things got darker and darker? As we saw in Psalm 105, he was right there. He saw. God was orchestrating all of this stuff. No mistakes. No having to figure it out. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he was setting this whole thing up. Because he has a plan and a purpose for Joseph. And for a family. And for a nation. And God gave him favor with the keeper of the prison. So chapter 40. He's been in there now. 11 years in prison. And Pharaoh has a baker and a cupbearer. And they take him off. So he throws them in prison. And he's with Joseph. And remember, they have dreams. The cupbearer has his dream. And he's got a cluster of grapes, three clusters of grapes. He squeezes them and he puts them into Pharaoh's cup. And he gives them to, uh, uh, to Pharaoh. And Joseph's like, oh, well, this is, this, is what, this is what that means. Okay, in three days, Pharaoh's going to bring you out. He's going to lift up your head. He's going to exalt you, and you will be back in the king's service. And this is where he sees his opportunity. He says, okay, now, when you stand before the Pharaoh and everything's good, please tell him about my situation. I got sold into slavery by my brothers. I don't belong here. I don't belong in this prison. I didn't do anything wrong. Would you please just put in a good word for me? Oh, sure. Yeah, you got it. And so the baker, he's like, that's great. Okay, this is what I had. I had three baskets on my head of bread and the birds were trying to get it and everything and all. And then, um, uh, and I can't remember the rest of it. Okay, but anyway, um, the birds were trying to get it and such. And uh, so Joseph says, okay, here's the interpretation. The interpretation is three days, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head from your body. He's going to hang you. 
You're going to die. Now, do you notice that Joseph didn't say, can you put in a good word for me? Okay, he didn't do that. It was, it was like the, the baker just had to go, oh my word, that's horrible. And after three days, those things came to pass. But look at what it says in verse 41, or chapter 41, verse 1. After two years. After two years. See, verse 23 of 40 says, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Forgot him for two years. How do you think Joseph felt? Here's the opportunity. You ever have that in your life where you go, okay, I know this one's going to work. This is going to get me where I need to be. This is going to fix the problem. And it just falls apart. Here's the thing. Joseph may have been forgotten by man, but he was not forgotten by God. God had him right where he wanted him. And through all of this, this continual going down and down and down into the pit, through all of it, Joseph still was faithful to God. And God was faithful to Joseph. God was with him in the darkest of times. And God was working to make him a man who could handle the responsibilities of leading an empire and delivering a nation, okay? So anytime you're in situations that are bleak, God is there. You can bank on it because the word of God says, that God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is absolute. He loves you, okay? Even in the dark times. So, chapter 41. We have Pharaoh call him in and say, okay, this is, this is the dream. I've had two dreams. Uh, nobody can tell me about him. The cupbearer, I mean, he finally remembers. It's like, oh, there's this dude. I forgot about him. And so they pull him out of the prison. They get him all cleaned up and everything. And he says, okay, this is, this is the dreams. Uh, there's seven fat cows, and then there's seven skinny cows, and the skinny cows eat the fat cows, and it doesn't look like they ate anything. And then there's seven fat ears of corn, and there's seven skinny ears of corn. The skinny ears of corn eat the fat ones, and nothing happens. It doesn't look like they ate anything. I don't know what it means. And Joseph says, God has told you what's going to happen, and he's given it to you twice, so this thing will be established. There's going to be seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine. And so what you need to do, Pharaoh, is find somebody who's wise to help prepare to take the empire through that seven years of famine. And Pharaoh goes, who is there like you? You're the guy. What do you think was going through Joseph's mind? You know, he woke up that morning, probably doing whatever a prisoner does, okay, after now 13 years as a slave and a prisoner. It ain't going to change. Today is the same as every day that came before. Hey, the Pharaoh wants to talk to you. Okay. 
And now Pharaoh makes him the second in command over the empire of Egypt. To carry the empire through a famine and deliver the family of Israel. Wow. That's amazing that God would do that. It says in verse uh, 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 30 years old. We get in those times where we feel like God is not moving and he's never going to move. He's forgotten me. No, he's setting things up because in Genesis chapter 15, when God made the covenant to Abraham, he said, okay, here's the game plan. Your people are going to go into a land for 400 years. And then I'm going to bring them out to possess the land. But the time of the Amorites first has to be completed. God was giving them enough time to, you know, basically hang themselves. They were sinners. They were wicked, vile people. And God was going to judge them, but he gave them 400 years. During that 400-year time that he was dealing with the Amorites, he was going to build a nation. And he used Joseph to put that family of 70 into the land of Goshen where they would flourish and grow. God was working. And we're going to see in just a moment, after about 300 years where they're flourishing and stuff, things start getting really bad and they want to leave. And God brings Moses into the picture. But when Moses is old enough, okay, when he's 40, that's not when he takes command of the people of God. They're suffering. Moses is now going through the furnace and going through tough times, being prepared to lead them when the end of the 400 years is up. So God is doing this continual working in the lives of these people. God's timeline is being played out according to his purposes. And so the famine hits. We know how this goes. We won't go into it really. But the famine hits. And Joseph, his brothers, end up coming to Egypt to get grain. Okay, because everybody knows Egypt's where you go to get food. They don't know it's him. They have no clue. And Joseph is testing them. He's wanting to see where their hearts are at. And he puts them in situations where, you know, he, he gives them the, the grain that they purchased, but he has his steward put the money back in and sends them home. And then they get, you know, toward home. They're going, uh-oh, we got a problem here. You know, what do we do? He's got Simeon in prison so that they'll bring Benjamin back. You know, they're, they're, they're having a tough time now. They're freaking out. Not because Joseph was mean, but he was testing their hearts. And you see that as they spoke in Hebrew, he was speaking in Egyptian with an interpreter. They had no clue he knew what they were saying. 
And when he would hear their hearts and go, man, God is doing this because of what we did to our brother. And he hears the remorse and the grief of what they've done. And he can't take it. He has to go cry, you know, and he's just weeping. And God is unfolding his plan and getting ready to bring this family back together. In verse, or chapter 43, they're getting ready to come back. Their food's gone. They're going to bring double the money back and some gifts to Joseph and say, hey, you know, we didn't steal our money, blah, blah, blah. And look at what Jacob says in verse 14 of chapter 43. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Jacob had no idea how much mercy was waiting for them. They had no idea the goodness and the blessings and the joy that was awaiting them. Jacob was scared to death that he was going to lose his little boy, Benjamin. Not so little, but his youngest, Benjamin. He was going to get back so much more. When his brothers get back to Egypt, they go to the steward and they start explaining themselves. This is what happened. We found our money back in our bags and we didn't know what to do. And we didn't take it. It was just there and blah, blah, blah. Okay. And listen, this is what the steward says in verse 23. This is, this is so incredible. This is coming from an Egyptian who serves Joseph. Peace to you. They are not at peace. Okay. Do not be afraid. They're scared to death. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks. God was setting them up for blessing. And they had no clue. And so often I think that God is setting us up for the wonderful things that he has for our lives. But we're in the storm. And it's hard to figure out where this is going to end up. It doesn't look good. But no, he's putting treasure in your sacks, preparing you for the day when he's going to bring you through that. Somebody once said that the end is not the goal where God is concerned. The journey is the goal because it's that process where God is working in our lives and it ultimately finishes up in eternity. So this is going on and Joseph uh, finally comes to the point where he's talking with them and he can't handle it anymore. He just breaks down crying. And he says to them, I'm Joseph. And at that point, all his brothers probably passed out. Okay. They were really, really scared to death. Oh no, we are in such big trouble. And we know that they were freaking out because after Jacob died, after daddy died, the first thing they're thinking is now dad's gone and he is going to whomp us bad. And they end up trying to deceive him and they lie to him. But Joseph is a gracious and, and humble man and, and deals with him wonderfully. But he blows their mind. 
And listen to what he says in chapter 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Psalm 105. God sent me here ahead of you. And he says in verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. What a heart. What a man. So they go back to tell Israel, Jacob, Hey, Dad, um, we got something to tell you. Uh, Joseph's alive. Now they've got to do some explaining. Okay, because he's been thinking he's dead for the last, okay, we're in the famine now. So 13 years when he's appointed by Pharaoh, 20 years he's thinking his son is dead. Jacob couldn't believe it. And by the way, dad, he also rules Egypt under Pharaoh. And he wants you to come and see him. Oh, my word. Here's this man who was grieved, thinking he had lost his son, fearful that he was going to lose Benjamin. Grief-stricken, heartbroken for two decades. And then his mind is blown. God was doing something beautiful. God was moving in a way that they would have never expected. And God does that in our lives so often. His ways are not our ways. So Jacob goes, everybody moves, all 70 go in. And uh, then the time comes, chapter 49, where Jacob is blessing his sons. Okay? Now remember, Judah is the fourth born, but he has the birthright now. He's the one that when Joseph had his cup put into Benjamin's bag, that he said, okay, Benjamin's going to suffer for stealing from me. Judah's the one who says, look, man, don't, don't, don't do this. Okay, please, I'll take it, put it on me, do what you want to do to me, but don't hurt the boy, okay? He's changed. Listen to what is said in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. That word tribute, it should say Shiloh, okay? Until Shiloh comes. The one of peace. The Jews understood that Shiloh was speaking of the Messiah. And the prophecy here is that Judah will reign as the kingly tribe of Israel until Messiah comes. In 7 AD, actually a little before that, the Herods were put in place of the family of Judah as the ruling family in Israel. Jesus came just before that happened. Okay? 
The scepter stayed, even when they were in Babylonian captivity. The scepter stayed with Judah. They had at least a governor of the tribe of Judah, even when Babylon was in charge. When Jesus came, Shiloh came, now the scepter is gone because the ultimate king has come. Okay? Incredible, beautiful prophecy. Again, just launching us further out into what God has planned for humanity. And then, let's go to chapter 50. And we'll go down to uh, verse 19. This is after Jacob's died. Brothers are freaking out. He's going to kill us now. Uh, And this is what Joseph says. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, be comfort, uh, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And then Joseph ends up dying at the ripe old age of 110. 93 years in Egypt. But what he tells his brothers is what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Does that sound like Romans 8, 28? God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It may not look like it. It may be dark. It may be painful. Your feet may be in stocks. You may be getting crippled. But God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's his promise. Now, Exodus chapter 1, we launched 300 years about into the future. And it tells us, verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Psalm 105. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so then Pharaoh says, okay, they're still multiplying. And he puts the word out to the midwives. You kill the baby boys. Remember what we saw earlier with Pharaoh's wife? I mean, Potiphar's wife, when God's moving, the enemy wants to stop it. God is about to raise up the deliverer to bring them out of Egypt. The family has become a nation now, and it's time to go. The enemy is seeking to destroy the deliverer. When Jesus was born, you remember, 
the Magi. And they go to Herod, who is not the rightful king. The king has been born. Where is he that we may worship him? And he put, he put a hit out on Jesus. I want to kill him. You, you let me know where he's at. I want to go worship him too. Yeah, right? The enemy wants to stop the things of God. Take it all the way back to Genesis in the garden. That's the way he operates. Okay? So anytime we are pursuing the things of God, you can be sure. And I'm not just talking about ministry. A godly family, godly friendships, godly work. Anything that we do for the glory of God, Satan is going to try to stop us or ruin what God is wanting to do in our lives and through our lives. So, they have been very comfortable for about 300 years or so. And God now allows this tribulation to hit. There's nothing like hardship to motivate, I think. Maybe, maybe love would motivate more, but I know in my life, when God has to get me to move, it's generally through tribulation. Either because I'm comfortable where I'm at or I'm committed where I'm at. This is a good place. I like being here. So God stirs it up. I don't want to be here anymore. And he motivates me to move into something else that he wants for me. Or if I just hang on a little bit more, God, we, we can fix this. We can make this better. Lord, just, just you know, let's, let's try a little bit longer. I know it's been a while, but let's just, let's just keep going. And God's saying, no, we're done here. But, but let's, let's just, come on, the old college try, let's do it. And God goes, okay, I'm just going to make it miserable for you so you want to go. So God uses tribulation to move us. And that's not the only thing he uses, but he uses it a lot. And that's what he does here. They want to leave now. And so when Moses is born, he's hid, we know, by Amram and Jochebed until you cannot hide a baby boy anymore. And in faith, Hebrew tells us, the book of Hebrews chapter 11, they put him in the little ark, okay? And they set him out in the Nile. And the daughter of Pharaoh finds him. She knows he's Hebrew and she has pity on him. Now it's believed, I thought I was going to be able to say this without looking at it. It's believed that the princess was Hashepsut, okay? She ended up actually becoming Pharaoh, co-regent under Pharaoh's little son, okay? And if that's true, Pharaoh's step, I mean, Moses' stepmama had a whole lot of power. And Moses had the best that there was. But look at what God did. In faith and obedience, Amram and Jochebed protected Moses and they committed him to the Lord. And the Lord works on Pharaoh's daughter's heart and brings it to where now she hires Jochebed to nurse her own son. How awesome is that? I'm going to give you your son back and you're going to get paid for raising your son. 
And Amram and Jochebed poured into Moses during that time of the weaning. And they put into his life. He knew who he was. He knew his God. He knew that God moved upon his life. But he was also in the house of Pharaoh. And what we learned from the book of Acts when Stephen is preaching, that he was schooled in the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding of Egypt. He was a learned man. He had everything he needed to lead a nation. God was preparing this man. The thing about Moses that we see here, though, is he understood that. And it says in verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, now he's 40 years old, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. Pharaoh did find out about it. Mom is not in the, stepmom's not in the game anymore. And uh, so Moses flees, okay? Here's the thing. Again, in the book of Acts, we're told that Moses thought they would understand that God raised him up to be their leader and deliverer. That was his motivation. And when it says he looked and saw his brethren and the burdens, it was looking with compassion, it was breaking his heart, and he couldn't take it. He saw one of his brothers being, brethren being uh, abused. He killed the Egyptian. He tried to do the deliverance in his own strength, in his own wisdom, his own power. That's not going to work, buddy. We're going to take you out to ten sheep for 40 years. You want to know how to lead people? Lead sheep for 40 years. It ain't pretty. But that's what Moses got. And God developed this man. God gives him a heads up. And I want to make sure we've got time. Okay. So when, he, when Moses is called by God, Moses' heart now, eight, he's 80. And he's like, I can't do this. I can't lead your people. I can't go to Pharaoh. I can't deal with Pharaoh. And God says to him, I will be with you. He was with Joseph. I will be with you. If God is with you, that's all you need. Okay? And way more. God was with him. And he says, well, who, who should I say sent me? You know, if they ask. And he says, you tell them I am who I am, Yahweh. And I said early, a couple of teachings back, there's three names in comprised in, in Yahweh, okay? The first is Hoye, he was, Hove, he is, and Yihe, he will be. And again, Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come. God is the I was, I am, I will be. I'm everything that you need. The covenant name. 
And God gives him a heads up and says, this is what's going to happen, Moses. You're going to go to him, and Pharaoh's not going to comply. Okay? There it is. So he gets the game plan ahead of time, but he still gets surprised when God doesn't move uh, the way that he thinks he will. And so Moses begins to give his excuses. Well, I can't talk well, and I don't speak well, and I don't do this, and I don't do that. And God's like, okay, look, I'm going to send your brother Aaron with you, okay? Your big brother, all right? How's that? Okay, you know. But we get so many excuses to God. Why, God, I can't do that. God, I can't do that. God, I don't know enough to do that. God, I've never done that. Christians and churches do that all the time. Oh, oh, we can't do that. Well, no, duh. But God can. That's the whole point. I will be with you. If you told Joseph you're going to be second in command over Egypt, I can't do that. Of course not. But God's with you. Moses, you're going to lead a nation because God's with you. You can do all things through Christ, no matter what it is. If God is for you, who can be against you? You have it all because you have the one who is all in all. You cannot get better than that. And so he goes and... uh, of course, Pharaoh says, no way, we're not going to do this. And um, in verse or chapter 6, basically God says, look, now that there's been this resistance stuff, everybody's going to know that I'm doing the work. It's not you, Moses. It's me. And this is the thing. God wants people, his people and the world to know that he's the one doing work. I used to think that I, I was important. I used to think I was God's gift to ministry. No joke. Okay, I just thought I was really, really gifted. I was great, you know. God dealt with me really hard. Put me in the fires. And when we think we've got what it takes, then we're so apt to take not only glory, but control. We can't do that. God is the one who is to have the glory because, and I've said it to people, they don't need me. They need him. They didn't need Moses. They needed Yahweh. Moses was a tool that God was going to use and bless. You are children of the Most High God that he wants to use and bless. Don't worry about not being able to do it because the Holy Spirit, and Dan talked about it this morning, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And if the Spirit who was in creation indwells you and who rose Jesus from the dead dwells in you, what more do you need? You don't have to figure it out. As we saw in Psalm 105, God's got the plan. He's just looking for the man or the woman. That's one thing that Moody said. He had heard somebody say, the world is looking, or God is looking for one person sold out to him. And Moody said, I want to be that man. And God used him mightily. And so I want to finish up with this. Um, 
the plagues come. They're very specific because the plagues that hit pertain to the gods of Egypt. The sun going dark, the sun god, the frog, the cattle, okay, the bull god. And you can look into that more if you want to, but God was knocking out the gods of Egypt one after the other. Who's doing this? Yahweh is doing this. He's in control. And you see where it says time and time again that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then in chapter 9, uh, it says in verse 10 um, that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that rough if God's hardening Pharaoh's heart? But it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. There's two different words. In chapter 9, uh, verse, um, verse 7, the word for hardened, where Pharaoh hardened his heart, is yikbad. And it means to be weighed in the scales. And this was a term that was familiar to the Egyptians. So the more evil you did, you weighed down that side of the scale. Okay? And that's every time it talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart against the Lord, he's weighing down the negatives in the scale. Okay? For the judgment. All right? The word where God hardened his heart is yehezek. And it means to confirm. Basically, like your mom or dad might have said to you when you were younger, you made your bed, you're going to lie in it. Okay? If this is where you want to go, that's where you're going to go. This is where you're going to be. I want to wrap up with this. Turn over to the book of Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 3. And God is speaking, and this is before the silent time, before John the Baptist is to come about 400 years later. And in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit, get this, as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The picture is God sitting as a silversmith, okay? When you have a silversmith working the metal, they don't just throw it into the crucible, fire it up, get it all hot, and then go, okay, I'll uh, set the timer, I'll come back in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever. They sat right there watching everything with a very attentive eye to what was going on to purify the silver. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard that the way that they would determine the purity is if the silversmith could look into the, the molten silver and see a uh, perfect reflection of himself, okay? That's what I've heard. Now, I don't know. I know that's not true where gold is concerned. But as far as, as silver, it might be. Um, but the point is this. Our salvation is not the end game 
for our lives. That's the beginning point. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, that was not the end. That was the beginning. When God saved us, that's the beginning. And the end goal is, as it says in Romans 8, 29, to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the goal, okay? And it says before then, he works all things together for the good who love him and are called according to his purpose. The goal is to be like Christ and he will work in us. Unfortunately, like Israel, there are many who come out of Egypt, a picture of the world and of sin, but they never enter into the full life, the abundant life of Christ provided for them. They just wander in the wilderness. Understand, Canaan is not a picture of heaven. There's a lot of hymns that are wrong, okay? If I offend you, I'm sorry, but they're wrong, okay? Canaan is not heaven. The Jordan is not crossing over into heaven because in heaven, we are not going to have enemies to fight, okay? It's a picture of the Christian life. And there are battles as we take the things that God has provided for us as we settle into the land of promise that God has given us. But there are so many believers who are out of Egypt, but because they just don't believe God, they don't enter into the full life that God has provided for them in Christ. The fires of tribulation serve to purify and strengthen us. And I would encourage you, embrace them. And this is coming from a guy who does not embrace them very well, but I'm learning, okay? It's for my good that I'm put into the crucible. It's for my purity. It's for my strengthening. So that God can refine this lump of clay into something that he can use in my marriage, in my family, in my community, in my church, and in his kingdom. It's not an easy road, but it's a good road. So be encouraged. If you're in the crucible, the great silversmith has got his eye on you, and he's working, and he loves you.